Welcome to the Red Duff Podcast. We are women storytellers and our stories center around Black women, activism, and mental health. I'm Rainey. And I'm Liz. So today we begin to discuss Asata Shakur. Asada's story, we're going to take a different approach than what we've done in the past. Listeners, as you know, we do dovetails. We're not going to do that kind of structure as we cover and discuss Asada. We're not going to go linear and we're not going to do an autobiography. We're going to pull concepts and ideas that we enjoy discussing on the show by using quotes and snippets of Asada's life from Asada's book as, as what we call a springboard for discussion. One of the most controversial stories about Asada is, of course, the shooting on the New Jersey Turnpike, New Jersey, and also her escape from New Jersey prison after being convicted for the um, murder killing of a New Jersey police officer. That particular story, if you'd like to hear more about it, join our Patreon. We're going to cover that story ad nauseum over on our Patreon it's the most controversial. However, it's also the most well-known. So we decided to discuss that on Patreon. And for the regular show, we wanted to discuss some concepts that we love to talk about, but that are actually, quite honestly, sometimes difficult to talk about because they're so complicated. So we thank you, Asada, for giving us the springboard to discuss some of these topics. Today, we thought it would be appropriate to begin with an opening statement, in particular, Asada's opening statement to a judge and a courtroom and a jury of her peers from 1975, because I think it sets a really good overview of where we're going, of what we're talking about, and uh, who Asada is in particular, her point of view at the time of 1975. Just for the benefit of any of our listeners who have never heard of Asada, or this is your first time discussing it, one thing I really liked from Asada's autobiography is that she provides a trial chronology, and it's a visual, and I'm not gonna break it down, but just so that you understand, 1975, when she delivers a wonderful opening statement, this is what's been going on from 1971, she's charged with a armed robbery at the Hilton Hotel in New York City. Uh, that's April 5th. April 23rd, 1971, she's charged with a bank robbery in Queens. September 1st, 1972, she's charged with a bank robbery in the Bronx. December 28, 1972, Asada is charged with a kidnap of a drug dealer. January 2nd, 1973, Asada is charged with murder of a drug dealer. January 23rd, 1973, Asada is charged with attempted murder of a policeman. And May 2nd, 1973, Asada is charged with the murder of state troopers on the New Jersey Turnpike. At this time, Asada, all of these charges, court appearances are happening simultaneously in Asada's life beginning from 1971 to 1977. Interesting. Every charge, this was the outcome. Dismissed, acquittal, hung jury, acquittal, acquittal, dismissed, dismissed, change of venue, mistrial because of Asada's pregnancy. We'll do a whole story about how Asada gets knocked up. 
uh, while she's in jail. Then the final charge, which is the most infamous charge, murder of state troopers on the New Jersey Turnpike. That is the one and only crime of all of these crimes that Asada is convicted. It's just my humble opinion that when you look at that evidence as a whole, nine out of 10 of these charges were met with dismissals or acquittals. They had no evidence or very little evidence. I think it was a way to harass Asada for being one of the leaders of the black power movement going on during this time period in the 1970s. That's just my opinion. But the facts are she was charged with multiple crimes. She spent years languishing in jail, waiting for her trial dates. And all of them were either acquittals or dismissals. Without further ado, Rainey, would you like to yeah, take it? I would. So I will be reading her opening statement. Judge Thompson, brothers and sisters, men and women of the jury, I have decided to act as co-counsel and to make this opening statement, not because I have any illusions about my legal abilities, but rather because there are things that I must say to you. I have spent many days and nights behind bars thinking about this trial, this outrage. And in my own mind, only someone who has been so intimately a victim of this madness as I have can do justice to what I have to say. And if you think that I am nervous, your senses do not deceive you. It is only because I know that this moment can never be lived again and that so much depends on it. I have to read this opening statement to you because I'm afraid that if I don't, I will forget half of what I have to say. Please try to bear with me. This will not be a conventional opening statement. First of all, because I am not a lawyer and what has happened to me and what has happened to Ronald Myers does not exist in a vacuum. There are a long series of events and attitudes that led up when we were sitting in this courtroom during the jury selection process. I listened to Judge Thompson tell you about the American system of justice. He talked about the presumption of innocence. He talked about equality and justice. His words were like a beautiful dream in a beautiful world. But I have been awaiting trial for two and a half years. And justice, in my eyesight, has not been the American dream. It has been the American nightmare. There was a time when I wanted to believe that there was justice in this country. But reality crashed through and shattered all my daydreams. While awaiting trial, I have earned a PhD in justice, or rather, the lack of it. I sat next to a pregnant woman who was doing 90 days for taking a box of Pampers and watched on TV the pardoning of a president who had stolen millions of dollars and who had been responsible for the deaths of thousands of human beings. For what? For peace with honor? Nixon was pardoned without ever standing trial or being found guilty of a crime or spending one day in jail. Who else could commit some of the most horrendous, destructive crimes in history and get paid 200,000 tax dollars a year? Ford stated that he pardoned Nixon because Nixon's family had suffered enough. Well, what about thousands of families whose sons gave their lives in Vietnam? And what about the millions of people who have been sentenced at birth to poverty, to live like animals and work like dogs? What about the families who have sons and daughters in prison who cannot afford bail or even lawyers for their children? Where is justice for them? What kind of justice is this? Where the poor go to prison and the rich go free? where witnesses are rented, bought, or bribed, where evidence is made or manufactured, where people are tried not because of any criminal actions, but because of their political beliefs, 
Where was the justice for the men at Attica? Where was the justice for Medgar Evers, Fred Hampton, Clifford Glover? Where was the justice for the Rosenbergs? And where's the justice for the Native Americans who we so presumptuously call Indians? I am not on trial here because I'm a criminal or because I have committed a crime. I've never been convicted of a crime in my life. Ronald Myers is not on trial because he has committed a crime. He was 19 years old when he turned himself in after seeing his picture in the newspapers. He thought that the police would immediately see their mistake. I met Ronald Myers for the first time about eight months ago in the lawyer's conference room. It was a strange meeting, something I hope I'll never have to go through again. I was shocked to see how young he was. And no matter what the outcome of this trial, I will always feel a bitterness about what has happened to Ronald Myers and what has happened to me. I do not think that it's just an accident that we are on trial here. This case is just another example of what has been going on in this country. Throughout America's history, people have been imprisoned because of their political beliefs and charged with criminal acts in order to justify that imprisonment. Those who dare to speak out against the injustices in this country, both black and white, have paid dearly for their courage, sometimes with their lives. Marcus Garvey, Stokely Carmichael, Angela Davis, the Rosenbergs, and Lolita LeBron were all charged with crimes because of their political beliefs. Martin Luther King went to jail countless times for leading nonviolent demonstrations. Why, you are probably asking yourself, would this government want to put me or Ronald Myers in jail? In my mind, the answer to that is very simple. For the same reason that this government has put everyone else in jail who spoke up for freedom, who said, give me liberty or give me death. During the Voy Dyer process, we asked you about the word militant. There was a reason for that. In the late 60s and the early 70s, this country was in an upheaval. There was a strong people's movement against the war, against racism, in the colleges, on the streets, and in the Black and Puerto Rican communities. This government, local police agencies, the FBI, and the CIA launched an all-out war against people they considered militants. We are only finding out now, because of the investigations into the FBI and the CIA, how extensive and how criminal their methods were and still are. In the same way that witches were burned in Salem, this government went on a witch hunt for people they considered militant. Countless numbers of people were either killed or imprisoned. The Berigens, the Chicago 7, the Panther 21, Bobby Seal, and thousands of anti-war demonstrators were all victims to this witch hunt justice. Maybe some of you are saying to yourselves, no government would do that. Well, all you have to do is check out for yourselves the history of this country and to look around and see what is going on today. All you have to do is ask yourselves, who controls the government and who are the victims of that control? Since you have been in this courtroom, you have heard the name Black Liberation Army mentioned over and over. Those of you in the jury have been questioned as to what you have read or seen on television and what your opinions were about the BLA. Most of you have stated that you thought the Black Liberation Army was a militant organization. You have said that what you have read or heard has come from the establishmentarian media. The major TV and radio networks, the Times, the Post, and the Daily News. I have read the same articles that you have read. I have seen the same news programs that you have seen. When it comes to the media, I have learned to believe none of what I hear and half of what I see. 
But I can tell you, if I were just Jane Doe citizen, and if I did not know better, I would have read those articles and come to the same conclusion that Joanne Chesimard, Ronald Myers, and all other people called militants were a bunch of white-hating, cop-hating, gun-toting, crazed, fanatical maniacs fighting for some abstract, misguided cause. But 1% of the people in this country control 70% of the wealth. And it is that 1%, the heads of large corporations, who control the policies of the news media and determine what you and I hear on radio, read in the newspapers, see on television. It is more important for us to think about where the media gets its information. From the police department or from the prosecutor. No major newspaper or television station has ever asked my lawyers or myself one question concerning anything. People are tried and convicted in the newspapers and on television before they ever see a courtroom. A person who is accused of stealing a car becomes an international car theft ring. A man accused of participating in a drunken brawl and the headlines read, crazed maniac goes berserk. During the 70s, the media created a front page headline guaranteed to sell newspapers, the Black Liberation Army. According to them, the BLA was everywhere. Almost every other thing that happened was attributed to the Black Liberation Army. Headlines that are sensational sell newspapers. The media shape public opinion and the results are often tragic. Before you were sworn as jurors, you were asked about your knowledge of what the Black Liberation Army is or what it stands for. However, most of you did say you believe that the Black Liberation Army was a militant organization. I would like to talk about that for a moment. The Black Liberation Army is not an organization. It goes beyond that. It is a concept, a people's movement, an idea. Many different people have said and done many different things in the name of the Black Liberation Army. The idea of a Black Liberation Army emerged from conditions in Black communities, conditions of poverty, indecent housing, massive unemployment, poor medical care, and inferior education. The idea came about because Black people are not free or equal in this country. Because 90% of the men and women in this country's prisons are Black and third world. Because 10-year-old children are shot down in our streets. Because dope has saturated our communities, preying on the disillusionment and frustration of our children. The concept of the BLA arose because of the political, social, and economic oppression of Black people in this country. And where, there's, and where there is oppression, there will be resistance. The BLA is part of that resistance movement. The Black Liberation Army stands for freedom and justice for all people. While big corporations make huge tax-free profits, taxes for the everyday working person skyrockets. While politicians take free trips around the world, those same politicians cut back food stamps for the poor. While politicians increase their salaries, millions of people are being laid off. This city is on the brink of bankruptcy, and yet hundreds of thousands of dollars are being spent on this trial. I do not understand a government so willing to spend millions of dollars on arms to explore outer space, even the planet Jupiter, and at the same time close down daycare centers and fire stations. I have read the Declaration of Independence and I have great admiration for this statement. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, 
and the pursuit of happiness. That to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from, from the consent of the governed. That whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or abolish it and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. These words are especially meaningful in the year of this country's bicentennial. I would like to help make this a better world for my daughter and for all the children of this world, for all the men and women of this world. But you understand that the BLA is not on trial here. I am on trial here. Ronald Myers is on trial here. And the charge is kidnapping and armed robbery where the so-called victim is a drug pusher, a seller of heroin, a man named James Freeman. We live in New York and it is impossible not to see the horror, the degradation, the pain associated with heroin addiction. Most of you have seen the staggering numbers of young lives sucked into oblivion, into walking deaths by the use of drugs. Many of you have seen helpless mothers watch their children turn into nodding skeletons whom they can no longer trust. And seen the dreams, the potential of a whole generation of youngsters drain away down into the bottomless pit of a needle. And these victims also have their victims, the countless number of people who have been mugged, burglarized, and robbed by drug-made vampires who care about nothing else but their poison. We will show you that James Freeman is a liar. We will show you that the other prosecution witnesses are all friends, relatives, lovers, or employees of James Freeman, and they are liars. You will see for yourself that they have conspired and they have been coached. Men and women of the jury, human lives are serious. I have already told you that I have no faith in this system of justice, and believe me, I don't. I have seen too much. If there was such a thing as justice, I wouldn't be here talking to you now. You have chosen to be the representatives of justice. You and you alone. You have said that you could try this case on the basis of evidence. What I'm saying now is not evidence. What the prosecutor says is not evidence. You may or may not agree with my political beliefs. They are not on trial here. I have only brought them up to help you understand the political and emotional context in which this case comes before you. Although this court considers us peers, many of you have had different backgrounds and different learning and life experiences. It is important that you understand some of those differences. I only ask that you listen carefully. I only ask that you listen not only to what these witnesses say, but to how they say it. Our lives are no more precious and no less precious than yours. We ask only that you be as open and as fair as you would want us to be were we sitting in the jury box determining your guilt or innocence. Our lives and the lives that surround us depend on your fairness. Thank you. Wow. That was, I mean, it really rings true to nowadays. I mean, what, this was written, I think you said, like the mid-70s, right? Yeah. So, 1975. So a good almost 50 years ago, maybe? And the same themes the same things like you, you hear that you know instead of you know 70 percent of the one per you know seven you, what was I, I she said something about one percent of the population owns 70 percent of the wealth and we've just seen that gap get even bigger 
you know, what, it's now like, what, 90%? Yeah, you're right. That's the one difference. Yeah, right? <laughs> like, it, like, all of it rings so true, you know? Like, it is corporations who make laws and lobbies, and if they don't like something, they can put pressure on it, and they spin narratives in the media, and it is very hard to trust the media because it is about what is the most sensationalized story. And how can we get people to tune in? And very rarely do we care much about facts anymore and looking at the entire picture, just like she illustrated. And it really is a haves and have nots. And even this idea of your jury of your peers, I'm, I'm positive it's not usually how it goes. You know, I think it was a very powerful speech. And for her to decide to do it on her own and not have a lawyer open it, I think it, it, it lends itself because it's her life on the line. And, and, you know, I think sometimes when we watch these things in these trials, we sometimes forget that they are, they're human beings on the other side of it. So, I mean, I thought that that was a really, really brilliant speech written. And, yeah, it hones true to just a lot of the things we are still seeing, the injustice of the justice system and, and the court systems and, you know, how it is just a money grab and how we will spend so much money on the things that we shouldn't be spending money on while people are struggling to make ends meet and mental health issues we have running rampant and drug addictions. But, you know, we can spend money on ridiculous trials and watching them go on and the whole country can sit and watch. Like remember a few months ago, the whole country watched that Johnny Depp Amber Heard trial. Yes. You know, which I'm not going to comment on that trial one way or the other, but how much money and energy was spent watching that versus, you know, veterans who are, still waiting for VA benefits and not getting them. And, you know, we just found out that Camp Lejeune has been poisoning, has poisoned water. Did you read about that? Yes. All the poisoned water with those Marines for the last three decades. And how long is it going to get to deal with those issues? And, and it's not going to be the same urgency as it is for these big celebrity cases that we get so engrossed in or, you know, watching what's going on with Donald Trump at Mar-a-Lago, which is important. It needs to happen. But you know, it's also a way to distract of the little things that are still happening, yeah. of, you know, the lives of people, like she said, you know, their lives are no less or no more precious than anyone else's, but we don't pay attention to it because it's not entertainment. I agree. That was in 1975 and on December 8th, 1975, after a four month trial, the jury acquitted Ronald Myers and Asada. We don't always get those kind of happy endings. I thought her speech had a tremendous impact on the outcome of that trial. I agree. It was powerful. I mean, even reading it, I was like, wow, this is, this is intense. It's but so well done. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that she did that. I'm glad that she took things into her own hands because, you know, we are our own best advocates, you know, and if we sit around waiting for other people to care as much about our issues and our problems and our lives as we do, we'll wait for the rest of our lives. Wow. Yeah. I feel that. If we didn't tell you what year that was written in, would you know if it was referring to today or yesteryear? No. I mean, if you took out the stuff about Nixon. Yeah. So, you know, when I was um, listening to you read that, if we replace Nixon with the quote unquote 
bank bailout. Mm-hmm. It's like, and then of course the the attention spent to the one percent and to this and to that. The parallels are striking and in that way depressing because it shows me how much more work we have to do. And even the people that she said had been killed by those injustices, had mm. she just replaced those names with George Floyd, Tamir Rice, all of these other names that we're more familiar with. And I mean, it's just a replacement of the time periods and the people in those time periods. But, you know, if she would have, we could take those names out of, you know, um, Martin Luther King Jr. and all of these people mm -hmm. and replace them with the people from today. And it rings just as true. You'd mentioned this earlier in earlier episodes, but it bears repeating now. Martin Luther King was hated in his time by people that look like me, i.e. white people. Hated. He had a 33% approval rating. He, people thought that he was a race baiter, that he was uh, a radical, that he, he they thought his nonviolence protests were radical. They thought that they, they lumped him in the same uh, veins as being militant. They, they looked at him as a militant, as a, a shit stirrer, and you know, said that the things that he was, was doing was awful, right? So when I say 33% approval rating, that means two thirds of the country did not agree with him and thought that he was an enemy to the, to the Republic. So, you know, it's funny when people kind of think, oh, you would have been on the side of Martin Luther King Jr. Most likely you wouldn't have been. You, you, you wouldn't have yeah. been because think of it now, those people who try to justify and use Martin Luther King Jr. to try to gaslight people of color and people who are allies doing the work now, you wouldn't have been on his side back then either. You know, so like if you're on the wrong side now, you, you, de you definitely would have been on the wrong side then too. Definitely. Well, thanks, Asada, for setting the stage for um, our September discussion, All Things Asada. We're going to pull different concepts that Asada speaks about in her books over the next month and take a deep dive into them. We're going to use Asada's words as what we like to call springboards for discussions around various topics that we enjoy discussing on this show. Until next time.